from Kurtco Media. So you're on the plane. Everything's fine, other than you've got no leg room, the food sucks, and the guy in front of you just leaned back so hard you're wearing your coffee. And then it happens. The guy behind you starts coughing, sneezing, blowing his nose, and your seat belted in. Hi, welcome to a new episode of Medicine We're Still Practicing. We've brought Dr. Suzanne Donovan back to update us on the latest realities and clear up the rumors on coronavirus. And, of course, my partner in crime, Dr. Stephen Tabak, is right across the table from me. How are you doing, Suzanne? Very good, thank you. Do I need to worry about being on a plane with uh, someone who's coughing and sneezing? Well, I think in the United States, you're more likely to be exposed to other respiratory viruses. Uh, COVID or coronavirus is uh, primarily transmitted by droplets, which means... If you're within six feet of the individual who's coughing, you're potentially exposed. I always like to carry a yellow surgical mask with me and hand it to the individual coughing as opposed to me putting on the mask, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Saves on masks, too, for the general population. Exactly. Right? We already have a shortage going. Significant shortage. So the Trump appointee that is the ultimate science for infectious disease and the true expert that is going to lead us in the fight against a virus like the coronavirus, Mike Pence. Is that a good idea? Well, that was a surprise announcement. I was taken a little aback because I, was, I wasn't aware that our vice president had a scientific background. In fact, his past history in his home state uh, with other infectious diseases uh, doesn't reflect well on his overall grasp of transmission dynamics and responding to outbreaks. And don't we already have a Surgeon General or a, and also a Secretary of Health and Human Services that might have a little bit more information to bring to bear on, on, the, on the issue? I think there's a tremendous wealth of experts in the United States. We can bring back Tom Frieden. You know, he's running a nonprofit for, I think, the Bloomberg uh, Foundation, and he has been through probably 50 significant outbreaks, and certainly he would be a valuable resource to responding to this. We have Fochi, who has also a very deep science background and a lot of experience with epidemics and pandemics. And we have a host of amazing scientists at the CDC. So this was a little bit of a surprise. But you doubt, actually, when I think about it, that that Mr. Pence is actually going to be the one who's going to be tabulating the data and making recommendations. He's probably going to be the figurehead spearheading the fight and the war on corona but he's going to have, you know, underneath him a whole team of experts. But hasn't he told the scientists that before they make any announcements, there's kind of a clearing committee that includes Mike Pence? For better or worse, actually, right? I mean, because there's so much panic right now. There's so much anxiety in the community. If you're using your, your power responsibly, you want to do something to mitigate the unwarranted angst. So if that's how his filter is going to be implemented, that's great. If he's truly going to limit the information that the general public really needs to know, and if we're no longer going to have an honest communication and honest reporting uh, to the general public as we expect in our democracy, then, yeah, then it's a serious problem. I think we can all agree there's been a lack of transparency during this current, I'm going to call it a pandemic because it's approaching a pandemic. Um, what, de what's, what defines a pandemic? Pandemic would be epidemic transmission on multiple continents. So we're not quite at epidemic transmission on multiple continents, but some of that is due to the fact that we haven't done 
great surveillance. So in the U.S., we talked on our last show that once you start identifying cases, one of the major underpinnings of a public health response to an epidemic is to identify new cases and do contact tracing. And we're sitting here with these numbers that are thrown at us on the evening news, but the reality is we really have no idea how many cases are in the U.S. because so few people are being tested, right? When this epidemic started in China, WHO and and other member countries really tried to accelerate the development of a test kit that would have great sensitivity for this new pathogen, now called COVID-19. Germany came up with a test that was adopted by the WHO, and the United States decided to go in their own direction and develop their own assay. We frequently do that. We have amazing scientists. I'm the biggest supporter of the CDC. However, that test that was developed by the CDC was beset by many problems, including a question recently of possible lab contamination. They sent that test kit out to regional labs. And we have a regional lab here in Los Angeles called the Los Angeles County Public Health Lab. There are other public health labs across the United States. And there was problems with both sensitivity and reliability with that test kit. But the German test was reliable? The German test is reported reliable. Do you think it's reliable? I do believe it's reliable. So help me understand what the CDC was deciding to do by going, as you said, a different way? I think the CDC wanted to develop a test that um, would be more comprehensive and offer more information. And unfortunately, that test and the problems with the test slowed us down. Days, weeks, months? six weeks at least. California had 500 test kits for the entire state released to them. So, so what's the point in, in releasing numbers of how many people have coronavirus if we really aren't testing anybody? We are only testing individuals that have clear contact with a confirmed case, individuals that meet the criteria, they come in with a significant pneumonia. So you, a fever isn't enough, uh, flu-like symptoms? A fever is not enough. If you go to your local ER urgent care with a fever, you will not get tested for COVID virus. But with a fever and a travel history, you certainly will. If you have fever, cough, and a travel history, or fever or cough, and contact, they become much more strict as you go along the criteria, criteria for testing. Now, those criteria are very dynamic, just like this epidemic is very dynamic. As they develop more test kits, those testing criteria are going to expand. In addition, because of the delays in developing this this test kit, universities and other entities have started developing test kits in parallel, and those will be used at some institutions. Is the test a blood test? Is it a, a, a swab? So that's, how do you, how do you that's, test? that's a fantastic question. So when we get an individual that's confirmed, the initial test is a nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal swab. So to break that down, I stick a swab deep into your nose so that you cry and you cough after I do it, which is why it's very important that I wear protective gear because that's a very high-risk exposure for the healthcare worker. The oral I'm not going to enjoy it either, by the way. No, you won't. The oropharyngeal swab is basically a throat culture that also tickles the throat, so the, the patient frequently will cough after that. If an individual is confirmed with coronavirus, then we test multiple sites. So we will do the nasopharyngeal, we will do the oropharyngeal, 
we will send stool, urine, and blood. But you're testing multiple sites really for educational purposes to sort of see what, what areas shed virus to help you learn about transmission down the road. It doesn't do anything for that patient uh, at the time that you're testing them to know that they have corona in their stool and corona in their nasopharynx, does it? I think there's so much we don't understand about the transmission dynamics of this virus. There are a lot of statements that are made about how infectious it is and how it's transmitted, but I believe the jury is still out. We know there's a possibility of transmission during pregnancy, and that's only going to happen via the blood infecting the placenta. So for me, that is very a very interesting uh, question. The other question I have, which I doubt, but I wonder about if people that are viremic or have it in the blood, is there any risk of sexual transmission? And I hate to throw that out there, but that's not been looked at at all. Right. And you would, you know, you would probably deduce that there is. It appears from the data we have to date that the most predictive ways, no surprise, is via the respiratory route. I do think the jury is out on stool transmission. When, when I'm talking about stool transmission, when you have a viral infection in your gastrointestinal tract and you develop diarrhea, which some patients do, you don't wash your hands. Some people do not wash their hands, and then you yeah. are going to infect other people that you may touch. You may touch surfaces. Surfaces. So what we call fomites. So fomites like this table here. I didn't wash my hands. I have coronavirus. I touch the table and you touch the table and you potentially are exposed because I didn't wash my hands. But I think it's very clear the primary route of transmission is from individuals coughing. Right. I think every, everyone would agree with that. Kissing. I have no question that kissing is a role. If you look at spouses or partners of cases, they have a very high rate of secondary infection. Is there anything that can be deduced in this early stage uh, to predict who might have the tendency to spiral downward and wind up being on a respirator? And is there anything that we can do to mitigate that risk that you can see this, this early in, in this new disease? I actually just looked at that data. So there's the data from China that's been published in New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet. And then we have some U.S. data, preliminary U.S. data on the first 15 cases in the United States. So it's very clear that the single most important predictor of patients dying or ending up in the ICU are older patients who have other conditions. Define older. Well, I hate to say it, but... <laughs> I would say we're older, it. <laughs> I would say people well, at speak this table. for yourself. But yes, probably over fifty. Over fifty. Over fifty, but it, the mortality rate goes up every ten years that you're over fifty. So one more thing to deduce from what you were talking about that those people who are uh, at greatest risk of winding up in intensive care, uh, it's the elderly, the infirm. Looking to the general public and what an individual may do, is there anything that a general, the general public, a healthy individual, or even those people who may not be at their optimal health, is there anything that they can do to optimize our immunity to help stave off infection? Well, I'm going to say it again, frequent hand hygiene or frequent hand washing. But that doesn't improve your immunity. Yeah, I think this is where you're going. There's some very limited data on whether zinc can prevent introduction of coronavirus into respiratory cells. Correct. 
And one of the things that we we strive to do yeah. on this show is to separate fact from fiction. Right. Can we look at the data, if there is data, even if it's anecdotal reports, and try to decipher the veracity of yes. the information that's So there's there. no clinical data that zinc in humans prevents coronavirus infection. So remember when people get sick from coronavirus, we don't really worry about people that have a cough and a mild fever or no fever and are otherwise healthy. We worry about people that develop pneumonia. And the pneumonia that develops in individuals with coronavirus involves typically the lower lobes of, of the lungs. And it has a very distinctive appearance if you do a CAT scan. By the time they get that sick, giving zinc is not going to make a, a big difference. This is a disease that primarily, as Steve mentioned, affects older individuals. That's very different from pandemic flu in 1919 and H1N1, where I saw 25-year-olds end up on an, a ventilator within right. 12 hours. We're not seeing that with young patients. This is a disease that really is going to cause its biggest impact on the frail elderly. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I want to learn everything that there is to know about the filmmaking process. I think part of art is hearing from the artists who create it. And the number of different visions, the number of different qualifications that have to go into making any film is insurmountable. And hearing those stories can be just as exciting and insightful as the movies themselves. Certain movies or certain scores, certain actors have shaped who I am as a person. I have such appreciation for the things that people produce and the work that goes into it. Whether it's the writer who came up with the story in general or how the filmmakers were able to take that from the page and put it onto screen and then from the actors themselves who were able to kind of bring that all to life. All of it is what I want to hear because it makes me love my favorite movies even more. I'm Scott Talal. If you love movies like I do, you're going to love Hollywood Unscripted. We're back with host Dr. Stephen Tabak and our very special guest, infectious disease specialist, Dr. Suzanne Donovan. When you are dealing with an epidemic, the first phase of an epidemic response is called containment. Containment is based on doing surveillance for cases with having a test to diagnose it and then doing contact tracing. We have been the slowest response, I think, of, of all the countries that have had significant disease, including European countries. Now, very uh, disheartening, because if you remember our first show, we asked you, what do you think the penetration of the virus will be in this country? And you were very certain... I was very optimistic. We, right, very optimistic that we were going to be ahead of the curve. Our CDC is far better than that of China's. Because you were I, proud of the controls, I, right? I was proud of the fact that... Listen, I'm, I'm a, a very patriotic person. We have, I believe, the best healthcare yeah. delivery system you know, in the world. We are the leaders in, public, in the public Always. health response of Always. epidemics, both in the U.S. and, and inter, in, internationally. To be honest, I'm a little gobsmacked. I hope as we expand testing, which we are going to in the coming weeks. Then maybe we can get ahead of the curve again. Well, no. I hope I'm wrong and that there's not a lot of community transmission. Tell me a story. Someone walks in the front door of your hospital. What happens? At the entrance of our hospital, we have signage in multiple languages that asks if they've recently traveled and if they have a fever or a cough. 
If they do, they report it to the individual at the entrance, and they are masked. They are then escorted to our urgent care or our emergency room. So we have a measles plan that actually looks at the path of travel, which I developed, from every point of entry into the institution. So if they are in the OB clinic and they're identified as a suspect, we have a path of travel to get them to a triage area. If they are in the lobby, we have a path of travel. If they are in urgent care, we have a path of travel. So we are adapting our measles plan for the path of travel for outpatients. But it's not just one person coming into the ER at a time. We have ten, let's say you have ten people coming in with a cough and a fever. Ten so people. Ten people get masks, but you can't bring ten people back into the ER if you're already full. What well, do you do with those people at that time? So at point of entry to our ER, our triage area does get a travel history, and they actually determine if that individual is a suspect. If they're a suspect, they are put in a negative pressure, which means the air is sucked out of the hallway up through a dedicated vent. So there's no contamination in the rest of the emergency room. They're masked, they're put in that room, and then they're, they're going to be evaluated to see if they're a COVID suspect. In the future, if we end up getting a surge, we will likely activate our pandemic flu plan and adapt it for COVID because they're both very pandemic. similar, right? I mean, it's, it's, they're very similar. The transmission is similar. And the plan is to have an external, an outside screening site, which is what we did for measles. Put them in a tent. In a tent. We, we have a tent. We did that for measles. We evaluate them outside. If it's determined that they may be a COVID suspect, then we have a pathway of what we're going to do with those individuals. So if you are someone that looks like you may have coronavirus, but you look well, you don't look really sick, you'll get swabbed. And per CDC and, and Los Angeles County Public Health Guidelines, you'll be sent home to home isolation, and public health will follow up with you on your test results. Yeah, rightly so, right? Rightly mm -hmm. so, right. There should be a mechanism in place by each institution and each clinic to disseminate the information that if you have a fever and cough, but you're not short of breath, you're not feeling dizzy, that you stay at home and take care of yourself. You know, push the fluids, take Tylenol for a fever. If you have a high fever or you're very short of breath, then yes, it's reasonable to come in. And if it's deemed that you need to be admitted, you will be screened if we have community transmission for COVID. Let's talk about healthcare workers that are at urgent cares. Yes. Because this is probably a place that's even more susceptible than a hospital because everybody who has a cold or a cough or a flu or anything or a hangnail goes to an urgent care. Now you have a bunch of workers that are in an environment where you really are a target. How should they handle themselves now? Same way, right? Uh, the same way. Uh, you know, science trumps fear every single time. If you remember, if you understand the dynamics of transmission of this virus, and there's a lot we don't know, but we do know the single most important predictor is transmission from patients that are coughing or have respiratory symptoms. We also know that most hospital or urgent care associated transmission from patient to healthcare worker is associated with a lack of what we call hand hygiene or just washing your hands. So if healthcare workers get in the habit of masking patients that are coughing and washing their hands, they will prevent the bulk of hospital and urgent care associated infections. I realize even though 
we don't have good numbers because not enough people in the U.S. have been tested. So we have no idea how many cases there really are. That's correct. Even though that's the case, it's still comparatively small to the flu. So, right? Right? The flu is huge. Without question. But I would make an argument. Every hospital should be tracking what's called influenza-like illnesses. It's called ILIs. And they should be tracking then confirmed cases. It's very easy for you to look at your ILIs and then your confirmed cases and look at the gap. I suspect if public health in Los Angeles County looked at the gap at hospitals, ILIs, and confirmed cases in their urgent cares in their hospitals, they're going to see a dramatic increase in the ones that we don't have an explanation of what the patient has. I think this virus has already been here in Los Angeles. Which is an actuality a good thing relative to the panic factor. Yes. So let me talk just two things about panic. We have identified the fact that panic has never saved lives. So panic serves no purpose. So try not to panic, number one. Number two, the idea that perhaps this virus is already widespread penetrating in this environment. We're not saying that it is. I, on, on some level, Hope that it is. Now, don't get me wrong. Listen carefully. I hope that it is because it would imply that the vast majority of infections are subclinical, mild, of no consequence to the individual's life and well-being at all. And it totally shifts the data to a, a virus which is not nearly as deadly as we think it is. Very similar to H1N1 Indeed. when we saw that. And the reason why that's important for us to have this data is our approach to the U.S. epidemic is going to be different. Without, you know, without data, we have no idea how to approach this. Exactly. So we're, we're making guesses. We're doing the best we can with the limited information that we have. But don't jump the gun with this data because this data is so skewed and it's incomplete. It's not purposefully skewed. It's skewed because we don't have enough testing available. We don't have enough data available. So you see this in statistics all the time, that 100% of the time so-and-so missed this test. Well, how many patients have you have you tested? Well, it was one that got missed. <laughs> so with an N of 1, 100% failure. Right. What does that mean? Don't jump the gun on this data. Don't get, don't get panic-stricken based on doing these calculations, because we don't have all the answers. Clearly, if you watch the news, this is something that the media is excited to talk about. So what should I change about my own actions under these circumstances? Not panicking, but should I change the way I think and act a little bit? You want to take care of yourself. You want to stay healthy as best you can. You want to try to avoid people who are coughing and don't let mm-hmm. them cough on your, you know, in your face. Um, if you have a fever, you want to sort of isolate yourself so you're not infecting other people. I would stop touching your hands to your, your hands to your nose, your mouth. You don't want to increase your, your risk of infection that way. We're doing the fist bump instead of shaking hands. Nothing wrong with that. I think that's a good idea to be a little more cautious. But should you sequester yourself in your house, not go to dinner? No, you're going to still live your life. You're just going to do it a little bit more cautiously and a little bit more aseptically, if we can. I would just add to that, if you know there is a country that is having ongoing outbreak transmission, and those countries are listed on the CDC website, or you can go to the Johns Hopkins website, which has 
a very dynamic, outstanding map to show you where the cases are, you're increasing your chance of exposure. It's fine to travel, but travel wisely. Exactly. Unless you're me, because I actually (laughs) like to go to places with outbreaks. Well, I know. There's something wrong with you, certainly, Suzanne. If I'm home and I feel sick, should I separate myself from my spouse? I think just like other respiratory viruses, you understand how they're transmitted. They're transmitted by coughing on someone within six feet, by not washing your hands and touching surfaces. So you follow that. You wash your hands frequently. If you're coughing, you cough into your elbow. You try to what we call social distance yourself. You don't have to go into the garage. You don't have to go into the basement or the backyard in the tent. But you do need to be aware of your behavior. You're going to be reasonable. I mean, we're not going to quarantine the whole world because they have a cough, especially when 99% of what's out there is not coronavirus. It's simple respiratory viruses that befall most of us in, in the winter months. But, Dr. Tabeck, what do you think about now the recommendations from the CDC to go to telecommuting, which I'm hoping for, and, you know, don't go to conferences and big work-related events? Do you think that's a good idea? Well, it's an interesting question. I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that other than the fact that it fuels the panic. I think the risk of, of contracting the disease is low, relatively speaking. The risk of dying from the disease is exceedingly low. And I think it might be a little excessive to say to the public, stop going to group events. So, honey, if you're listening, apparently I don't have to stay in the garage. Um, Dr. Suzanne <laughs> Donovan, thank you so much for coming back. And I have no doubt as this progresses, we're going to ask you to come back again. And, of course, Dr. Stephen Tabak, as always, you are a font of knowledge that we really appreciate. And you'll keep us cool, calm, and, in my case, um, I, I guess just a little less panicked when That's, that's certainly when my goal. In. And it's great to be here. And, Dr. Donovan, it's wonderful seeing you again. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming in. Come back to medicine. We're still practicing next time. We'll see you soon. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. Doctor, doctor. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.